So we've been in a, in a cosmos where the contemporary cosmology is intensely historical. So my goal for this uh, this talk or this you know talk uh, part of the session is to give a brief overview of what uh, contemporary science teaches us about the historical nature of the cosmos. Uh, I will also try to argue that this is essentially a good and providential thing that we have discovered with how historical of the universe we live in. And then I will mostly hand it over to Father Thomas to deal with some of the challenges, uh, some of the theological and metaphysical challenges of, of this scientific discovery. Uh, but first, I would like to give some intuition of why this might turn out to be challenging, and I'm going to argue that this is uh, fundamentally uh, good thing. So, um, about this sort of 200 years, in the past 200 years or so, we have discovered through the lenses of biology, chemistry, physics, and cosmology that the universe does change with, with time. Um, this is a very different cosmology compared to the cosmologies within most of uh, Catholic theology and uh, the Jewish theology that preceded what we call. So if we look back in time, we have cosmologies that are sort of intrinsically uh, ahistorical, even if they include an initial, mostly seen as rather short, uh, creation, uh, creation narrative. And this is true whether we look back to the time when Genesis uh, was written down, or uh, which was done within uh, the context of the Middle Eastern uh, cosmology. Um, so if you think about things like why is there a separation of waters in Genesis, well, these are partly because we are situated within a cosmology that has a heavenly and an earthly reservoir of water. The same is true if we move forward in time, we move to something like Aristotelian cosmology, those, you know, the, the framework that uh, St. Thomas operated in. This too is a, a historical cosmology. Again, when Christianized, it does have a beginning, but it doesn't sort of naturally have a beginning or an evolution over time. And it's definitely true when we move into the Enlightenment, we think about the clockwork universe, which by its nature is conceived of something that sort of winds up at the beginning and then it runs in eternity in the same way. Uh, so when the modern cosmology was introduced about 100 years ago and the Big Bang theory was conceived of by Father Lemaitre, it was actually met with quite some suspicion of seeming to you know, bring too much history into, uh, into physics, into cosmology. And Part of why this is a suspicion is that in both they saw and I got to see that this historical universe is actually more of a natural fit with uh, Christian theology than any of these previous cosmologies uh, were. Uh, so one of the reasons that we want to have a good understanding of cosmology, both the present one and the past ones, uh, is to be able to interpret uh, theology as it was developed uh, in, in the past and not get back into this very messy, uh, uh, messy mixtures of cosmology and theology that was at the core of something like the Galileo Affair, which, as you all know, uh, caused quite a lot of PR damage to the church and her uh, uh, science uh, friendliness. Now, there is a... Uh, Following the, the 
there, there's been several sort of attempts, I think, to separate cosmology and geology from one another and make sort of a clean break. And after all, scientific truths are by their nature always uh, somewhat uh, provisional. Um, I don't think this uh, either is a very good idea, and indeed I don't think it's possible, especially in the Catholic context where we have always relied on sort of clues from nature uh, to, in the development of theology and in our understanding of God. There's another reason that we want to really uh, have a deep understanding of what science teaches us, and that is that we believe, right, that there are two books that reveal God. One is the book of the Bible, which provides the most direct access and it's God's uh, self-revelation to his people. But then we have the book of nature, which in a, in a dimmer and a less of direct way, uh, also provides a window uh, onto God as a creator. And if we believe that to be true, then how do we want to have as good of a window as possible uh, onto, onto the creator, and therefore have as good an understanding as possible of what science teaches us, what the universe teaches us. Now, as I said, we live in a, in a universe that is historical, and it's historical through several uh, different lenses. Uh, biology and geology were the first uh, lenses through which we started to realize that we live in a historical universe, uh, here illustrated by the evolution of the force. Um, if you look on much larger scales, so we look at how galaxies, so we live in a galaxy of about 100 billion stars, the, uh, the Milky Way. If you look at how galaxies evolve over time, they don't look the same. Like when we go back in time, even the shapes of galaxies look different. So whether we zoom out to the larger scales or look at the, at, at the smaller scales, we see this uh, historical uh, narratives that we can live with it. Um, this, it cannot really be <coughs> emphasized enough how different this is from the previous cosmologies. I mean, there are other differences as well that we often receive more sort of popular press. Certainly, our universe is, uh, our cosmology is larger, it is older uh, than many of the previous ones. I guess not that we believe in the terms like sort of pre-eternity, but otherwise it is, it is older, it is bigger. Um, that seems to me like far less consequential than, than this fact of a, of a history. I mean, after all, even the psalmist uh, was sort of overwhelmed by the size of the, of the universe and wondered how God could care about such a small thing as a human within, within this context. That seems to have always been there to be small compared to, to the heavens and the stars. Um, but the, the, that we have a beginning, not just this very short creation, but this unfolding of the universe, that is something new as the past two hundred years. So, with that in mind, let's just have a, a brief look, I said, of what the universe, how the universe evolved, uh, what it looked like, sort of from the beginning, uh, about fourteen billion years ago, and then going moving pretty quickly forward in time to current. So when we think about the big, the big Bang, uh, so this is the you know, very rapid expansion of our universe from a very, very tiny volume into the vastness that is today. So if you go back to the sort of first fraction of a second of our, our universe, uh, we have the whole <coughs> universe can fit into something that's less than an atom. I mean, 
mean, it's, it's unimaginable uh, how, how small it was compared to how, how large it is now. Now, one sort of quick distinction is that we shouldn't put an equal sign between the Big Bang and creation out of nothing. Uh, they're not necessarily the same thing. In some sense, the Big Bang is certainly a beginning, a true beginning. Uh, science can't really probe further back than the earliest times of, of the Big Bang. Uh, it is the only beginning we have of our universe. Uh, but it's not necessarily a metaphysical beginning. It could have been something before it, out of which the Big Bang happened. And I don't think you want to fall into the trap of putting a equal sign uh, This, I don't think this makes the Big Bang theologically insignificant. I mean, if there ever was an icon of creation, this would be the Big Bang. And actually, it is incredibly providential that just as atheism started becoming dominant in the academy, we get the discovery of the Big Bang theory, uh, which sort of puts right in front of us this icon of creation. It is much harder to, to, to forget uh, that we are contingent Word when you actually see it coming into its current being, then if you believe that it was existed uh, from all time. <coughs> so setting aside the creation of nothing, we have the we have the initial uh, expansion of the universe, which is preceded, which uh, comes after what would have been the actual metaphysical creation. The first, during the first fraction of a second, we have a very intense compactness. Uh, even the forces of nature are not necessarily the same. They start becoming distinct uh, forces of, of nature during this first fraction of a second. Uh, and with forces of nature, we think like gravity electromagnetism. So the things that govern uh, the physics of everything since the first fraction of a second. During the first minutes or so, as, well, as the universe expands and cools down, as it cools down, more and more complex particles become distinct. So when we're looking, I can say we're bound together. So if we're looking during the first few minutes, we start having uh, atoms uh, becoming, uh, like the nuclei, nuclei of atoms, uh, becoming distinct particles. Uh, during the first 20 minutes or so, these uh, these nuclei can merge to form fuse, to form larger elements. Uh, because there's a brief window between which we have stable nuclei or where you can have enough energy to fuse them together, the only elements that form during this very early time are uh, hydrogen, hydrogen, and helium. So this is stuff that's pretty boring for a boring uh, As the universe continues to, to cool down, uh, it becomes uh, possible uh, for these atoms to start holding on to electrons, for the future to start holding on to electrons. And at that point, we have the first atoms. So we have helium and hydrogen atoms. Uh, this takes about three, four hundred thousand years to so cool down enough to hold on to, to electrons. Uh, at that point, uh, you start to get a very important separation, a very important distinction, which is that between matter and light. So up until that time, matter and light, matter and focus are being completely bound intertwined and bound together. Once you get beyond the cooling point, they separate. 
And we know this happens because we have a picture of that separation. So this is where the cosmic microwave, microwave background radiation comes from. So this is uh, the first picture of the universe. This is as far back as observational astrophysics or cosmology goes. This too, when the universe is 400,000 years old, which puts in context of that the universe is about 30.8 billion years old, we can actually probe very close to the beginning with observations. And that's what our theory puts back into the very first fraction uh, of the Now, as you see from this cosmic microwave background, it's not uniform. There's a bit of granules uh, all, all over. It's, uh, these uh, little granules, these are the signs that already within the first 300,000 years, structure starts developing within the universe. This structure that you see in the microwave background radiation is what is, are the seeds of galaxies and stars uh, as we fast forward uh, during cosmic during evolution. During the same time, we also have another important first from my dual background as a chemist and an astronomer, a very important one, which is that we have the first molecule so up until then, there was no chemistry. Around a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, the first molecule forms. This is very weird uh, from a biological point, completely inconsequential molecule, uh, uh, hydrogen helium plus, or a helium But this is the very first, has the distinction of being the very first molecule. Now, without molecules such as these, stars cannot form. So this is actually an important event, not just from the chemistry point of view, but also from the physical point of view. Within a few hundred million years, uh, these molecules, together with expansion of the universe, uh, allow for some of the primordial gas, so the hydrogen and helium, to collapse to form the first stars. This changes everything with what the universe is. Uh, these stars, they light up the universe again, it's been dark for the past few hundred million years. When the stars go supernovae, uh, they produce, the, or they spread out and they produce the all the other elements in the periodic table. So suddenly we have also you know, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, and iron, other elements uh, in the universe. And this allows for a second generation of stars to form, which is much more like our sun, which has these elements. And importantly, from our point of view, it also allows for planets to form. So, as I'm sure you have noticed, you do not sit on a body that's made out of hydrogen and helium, but rather on a body that's made out of much heavier things like iron, silicon, and these needed these supernovae to form. So, our planet is only about 4.5 billion years ago, but we think planet formation became possible within the first billion years or so of the universe. So we are a bit of a latecomer, uh, which is something that's interesting when you think about how unique we are as also uh, in the living planet. Planets form is sort of leftover dust and gas around the stars, as is illustrated here. Uh, we know this because we can actually observe these disks. This is a very recent development in astronomy that we have telescopes that actually allow us to directly observe this process. So these are real images of planet formation caught in action. This is the dust and gas around young stars where you see these lanes carved out by the planets that are right now accreting the material to grow in size. 
um, this chemistry, we, we have more or less figured out how you can go from very small organic molecules uh, up to the building blocks of proteins, DNA, RNA, cell walls. That's mostly a solved problem, so it's an unconstrained uh, problem in its unsolved. Once we have gotten to a stage where we have longer RNA and DNA strands that can copy one another, some sort of pre-Darwinian evolution can probably take over to, um, especially if you have some studying some compartments to get you uh, to, towards the first cell. But that space in between, where you go from the building blocks of RNA and DNA to something that's just having the functionalities of life, um, is that it's an unsolved scientific problem which people are working on trying to figure out. And I, I mean, I really hope we figured it out because that allows some constraints of when we try to figure out if there is life elsewhere. So where I want to just spend another minute is thinking about exactly that. Uh, are we the only plants that have this specific history of a biological uh, evolution? Uh, where we can start to assess that is by thinking about these very first steps. Like how many other planets, I think about that, at least having the building blocks of DNA and RNA, as we think happened very quickly here on Earth. Now the building blocks of uh, DNA, RNA, of, uh, of cells, uh, here on Earth, and in an Earth-like environment, we think it's actually quite easy to get there, as long as you have liquid water, you have continents, then you have a large influx of small organic molecules like hydrogen, cyanide, and similar cytokines. Very small, so two, three atoms kind of organic molecules. Turns out hydrogen cyanide much better for the organs of life than for you know, sustaining it. Uh, it is one of the molecules that we, we really excited about when we find these things. So how often do we find those kind of, kind of environments in something like uh, our lab? Well, the first thing that we have figured out over the past sort of decade is that almost every star has a planetary system. So planets on their own are not regular. In that sense, we are not, we're not very special. Uh, for there to be liquid oceans on these planets, you need a planet to sit at a certain distance from the star. You need to be temperate. Uh, where that space is from the star is going to depend on how hot the star is. Uh, for most stars, the galaxy are much cooler than ours, so the planets are going to be very close to the stars to be temperate. We think that a few percent of stars have planets in this temperate zone. The third question would be, well, if they are temperate for water, do they actually have water? Uh, turns out that water is one of the most common molecules in the universe. Incredibly abundant. When we're talking about the separation of the water reservoirs, there is, there is some... Um, sort of modern icons of that separation in that we have this extremely abundant space that's far of water. So we think plants are, are generally going to have water. And then the final one, do they have those things like hydrogen and cyanide uh, on them, like these planets? Do they, are they born with a lot of smaller organic molecules? And there too, uh, we can actually use telescopes to actually look for these molecules in this system of stars. And when we look, we find those well of organic molecules, including things like hydrogen cyanide. So our best estimate is that of the hundred billion stars that we have in the galaxy, um, around between a percent and a fraction of a percent of them will have something that is similar to Earth around them. 
So if all that's needed for life are these basic building blocks, we should be far from the only planet with this kind of biological history. But of course, there's a big if that we do not know at this point. So with that, um, I would like to, to conclude. Um, wherever we look, and how, whichever scientific lens we look through, uh, we seem to live in an intensely historical uh, universe. We know that from a metaphysical and theological point of view, uh, from a metaphysical point of view, that it's not like it was necessary for God to create such a historical universe. And this is something that Thomas disagrees with some of his predecessors and contemporaries about whether whether creation means that there has to be a beginning in the um, And I would follow him and say that. So why did God then create this kind of historical universe? Now it's always a bit dangerous trying to psychologize, you know, the creator of the universe, but yet I am gonna give a few what I think are reasonable reasons why it is uh, providential and good that we live in a historical First of all, as already mentioned, that we have this beginning that we can discover through scientific means, um, is this constant reminder that it's strange that the universe exists at all, that it's not something we can take for granted. And I make sure the argument from contingency puts it in front of our eyes in a way that it really wasn't when science was saying that the universe was Second, I think it does endow uh, creation with this beautiful dignity to get, to get to be part of its own co-creation. Not totally dissimilar with how we have been imparting this beautiful dignity of having uh, a creative power that is you know, at a higher level compared to, to uh, the universe. Third, and this is the classic argument ultimately about evolution, whether it's a cosmological or biological level, um, having this historical universe certainly allowed for a greater number of structures and processes and things to exist than if they were all next to one another and created at the same time. Um, it is not good for a planet like ours to be sitting next like, to a, an intensely star-forming region, an intense star cluster, but they do make for amazing cosmic fireworks that only can exist because we are not, like we can only exist because we're not sitting right next to them either in time or <laughs> And finally, I think the size and the age of the universe is more or less necessitated if you want to have a universe that develops from less than an atom into something that is low density enough to allow for stars and planets to form. Uh, it creates this immense size and age, which I think puts us, us Sort of, sort of gives this great icon of the infinity and the absolute immense power of, of God, which makes the incarnation all the more specific. And that's where I would like to So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ober, for that um, beautiful presentation of the, the historical cosmos and, and the reflections on how it is providential and good. But um, here at the Thomistic Institute, the most important question is, is it Thomistic? Um, so I guess that's my job. Um, now, my, the physicist in me wants to pull up a PowerPoint and just start going, but I, I, I constrained myself to be the philosopher today. So, um, I, uh, so I'm going to read, read from the text uh, as best I can. So um, in 1963, 
Father Raymond Jude Nogar, a Dominican priest and professor of the philosophy of science at the Aquinas Institute in River Forest, Illinois, in the United States, a founding member of the Albertus Magnus Lyceum there, which was the source of what became known as River Forest Thomism, and a one-time visiting professor here at the Angelicum, published a work called The Wisdom of Evolution, which probed the evidence for and limitations of evolution and took an initial foray into its philosophical implications. In a short article summarizing this work, he brought to light the tensions raised by the historical cosmos that Dr. Ober just presented so beautifully for us. He says, one of the most serious shortcomings of traditional worldviews, based fundamentally on a platonic or an Aristotelian approach to reality, is their failure to account for the place of space-time, of history, in the understanding of the universe and of man. Preoccupation with the necessary, the eternal, the immutable, provided the tradition with an ontological blind spot. It could not see what the contemporary mind, with its gaze upon the space-time contingency of existence, could see only too well, that the historical unfolding of cosmic being and the life of man belongs not to the realm of the incidental, but to the very heart of reality. Any philosophy or theology which neglected the timely for the timeless and eternal could not be but illusory. Nogar's particular response to this, uh, he saw as embracing something of Heidegger's suggestion that the original Greek notion of phusis, of, of nature, was more dynamic and fluid than what the later tradition uh, developed. And he thought that a version of this nature was amenable to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas and continued to work on that question until his unfortunate un and untimely death only a few years later. Now, a fuller treatment of the work of Father Nogar, uh, both for its helpful suggestions and, and perhaps some of its problems, we'll have to wait for another time. I, I would like simply to focus on the problem he presents and ask two questions on the two sides of the conflict. First, I want to try and understand why and how Aristotle and Aquinas understood this immutability of, of nature. And second, I want to look more closely at just how contingent and fluid our historical cosmos really is. So my first section is of mules, mites, and the phoenix. Uh, Nogar is surely correct that there is great stress placed on the eternal and immutable in the thought of Aristotle. Eternity and necessity are not simply important features of the most eminent things in the universe, the heavenly spheres, but form an, an integral part of demonstration and science. He and Aquinas with him insist that even though natural things may or may not be eternal themselves, there can be true science of all natural things because the universal natures are immutable and eternal, even if the things that possess those natures are not. On top of this, they are convinced that the, the general taxonomy, the general hierarchy of nature uh, is relatively fixed. Um, as, so, uh, so, on, so, so far, I have simply confirmed all of Nogar's fears. Uh, but I would like to try and peel back at least one layer and understand just how fixed the taxonomy that Aristotle and Aquinas had was and on what grounds they were convinced of this fixity which necessitates, uh, either fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your opinion, uh, a foray into some of the oddities of Aristotelian biology. Um, of course, Aquinas himself is a huge help as a guide since he was constantly on the lookout for difficult cases uh, against his own views. In the Summa, for instance, uh, when he's been dealing with the, the, the seventh day, he raises as an objection to the idea that creation had been completed on the seventh day 
that new species are, uh, that are frequently appearing, especially in the case of animals generated from putrefaction, by which he means animals that were spontaneously generated, as he believed occurred. He responds that species also that are new, if any such appear, existed beforehand in various active powers, so that animals and perhaps even new species of animals are produced by putrefaction by the power which the stars and elements received at the beginning. And notes fur further, animals of new kinds arise occasionally from the connection of individuals belonging to different species, as the mule is the offspring of an ass and a mare. Aquinas is in some ways frustratingly silent on the details of his understanding of these natural processes, uh, simply asserting, as we have heard early, something of the fact that these new species are perhaps somehow present in their causes, without going into some of, uh, some of those details. Now, perhaps it's not surprising that Aquinas, busy as his theological work kept him, did not expound on natural processes, but simply presumed a certain familiarity with the best natural knowledge of his day. For an imperfect glimpse into Aquinas' probable understanding of these processes, we can turn to his teachers, ultimately Aristotle, but more immediately also St. Albert the Great. In particular, there are two especially enlightening passages in Aristotle's De Generatione Animalis, one on mules and the other on spontaneous generation, these two examples that Aquinas brings up. Um, and I, I do have to say, I have to thank that uh, Dr. Brian Carl, University of St. Thomas in Houston, and my own first teacher in the thought of Aristotle and Aquinas for introducing me to these particular texts. And I'm going to thank him by stealing the best line I've heard of him from him on the first of these passages. Mules fascinate and, uh, sorry, mules fascinate and trouble Aristotle. Uh, they come up in a whole host of his works, uh, logical, metaphysical, and whatnot. But in the, in, the generation of animal, uh, in the generation of animals, he spends an entire chapter simply on the question of why exactly mules are sterile. Uh, he initially rejects the, f uh, the physical explanation of Empedocles and Democritus and suggests that perhaps a, an abstract argument might be more convincing, a more general argument, further removed from the principles of the subject. He notes that the offspring of animals of two different species is of another species, that the mule is not of the same species as the horse or the, or the donkey. He states, it follows that as both male and female mules are produced, which of course do not differ in species, and as a mule is the offspring produced by a horse and an ass, both of which are different in species from the mule, it is impossible for any offspring to be produced by mules. The reason being, first, no offspring of a different species can be produced by them because the offspring of two animals, male and female of the same species, belongs itself to that species. Mules are the same species. If mules mate with mules, they should make mules. But a mule cannot be produced because the mule is, as we have just said, the offspring of a horse and an ass. These two animals which differ in species. So he presents this argument and, and uh, as something inherent in what the species are, in that, that there's a limitation in what um, the way that species can be related to one another. Uh, and he responds to this, uh, this possible argument by saying, now this argument is too general. There is nothing in it, because there is nothing in any argument which does not start from the first principles belonging to the particular subject. But also, this argument is false, because many of the animals that are produced from parents of different species are fertile. And as I have said earlier, no, this method of inquiry is as wrong in natural science as it is elsewhere. But in natural science, you need to start from the natural principles of the physical
And he has seen many examples of hybrids, uh, uh, offspring of different species that themselves are fertile. Uh, he insists that the beginning an argument about the particular powers of a particular natural beings from the nature of sort of species as a whole is an improper line of argument in the natural sciences. Not to mention that this general argument is disproven empirically. He goes on to explain the sterility of mules on natural principles by reference to the weakness of the generative powers of the horse and the ass, disparity of temperature in the generative matter, matters, etc. St. Albert generally just transmits uh, the, this argument of Aristotle with little added comment in his large work, the De Animali, was his large commentary on the, animal, uh, the works of Aristotle on animals, uh, the various works of Aristotle on animals. But he follows Aristotle more explicitly in his own thought uh, in a further discussion of mules in uh, a work that questions on Aristotle's uh, De Animali. He restricts his argument for the mule, or for why the mule is naturally sterile, to the properties of the generative matter of animals, just like Aristotle does. And it is worth noting that he does introduce a new notion, the notion that the mule is an imperfect animal, imperfect because it does not achieve the perfection of generating an animal exactly like itself. That is what the perfection of animal in the fullness is to produce something exactly like itself. So the mule does not achieve to that perfection. Uh, and yet, nevertheless, Albert explicitly states that the mule's generation is not some monstrosity, not some failure of nature. Uh, he says that its generation is nevertheless natural in a certain respect, because there are many animals that are imperfect when compared to others, but whose generation is natural because they are perfect in their own genus. Although Aquinas himself does not regale us with an exposition on the sperm of horses and asses, uh, it seems reasonable that he would at least be aware of and, and, and build on or, or accept something of these sorts of arguments, and more importantly, perhaps the mode of arguments that are being presented. Namely, that arguments about natural processes should be grounded in natural principles and subject to empirical correction. So turning briefly to the topic of spontaneous generation, Aristotle, again, has much to say on this in various places, but one particular passage seems to shed light on something of why he understood uh, that the, the, the taxonomy, the hierarchy of nature to be so fixed. In the very first chapter of the generation of animals, Aristotle considers what might happen if spontaneously generated animals could produce offspring by copulation. So if, uh, two animals are spontaneously generated, they are somehow able to mate and produce an offspring. If, on the other hand, the products, so the products of this mating of two animals that were themselves spontaneously generated, were dissimilar from their parents and yet able to continue to copulate, we should then get arising from then yet another different manner of creature, and out of their progeny yet another, and so it would go on ad infinitum. Nature, however, avoids what is infinite because the infinite lacks completion and finality, whereas this is what nature always seeks. Aristotle, in a certain sense, seems to have no absolute problem with the notion of a species uh, generating something of a different species in this particular case. Um, but it seems plausible there is something of an implicit argument, uh, uh, premise in this argument, namely the eternity of the world. Uh, if this ad infinitum is actually going to be achieved, it seems like there needs to be an infinite amount of time to allow all these various uh, generations to achieve that infinity. Now, Aristotle does not uh, raise a, a particular metaphysical prohibition on the continuous generation in this context, but simply a, a more natural one about what nature is and what nature is capable of. 
uh, and one implicitly, I, I think, in tied to something of his notion of the eternity of the world. Now, Albert transmits this passage as well without much further comment, and so perhaps the mere tendency toward infinity, even if not the actual infinity, as Albert was convinced that the universe was not in fact eternal, perhaps that tendency towards infinity was repugnant enough for, for, for Albert and for, Arist or for, for Aquinas. Nevertheless, it is still important to note that this fixity of species is rooted in a natural, not a more general argument about species as a whole. Um, uh, yeah, and, and it is somewhat tantalizing to consider that in, in Aristotelian's mystic natural philosophy, informed by the particular empirical facts of the known finite history of evolution, could find perhaps some other arguments to avoid the, the problematic uh, infinite regress or, or tendency towards infinity. Um, now, I'm going to skip over the phoenix, unfortunately, just for the sake of time. Uh, but I want to uh, just summarize briefly that these passages, while brief, uh, paint a, a picture of the, the complexity of the, the natural world that was dealt with by uh, Aquinas and Arist uh, Aristotle. Sometimes we think of the, 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 the physics of that, their day as being fairly straightforward. You've got the heavenly spheres, you've got uh, uh, the four elements, things work out fairly nicely. But there is a, a recognition of the, the difficulty and complexity in nature and, and the need to apply general principles to these, uh, to these natural things, not necessarily in a top-down way, but by looking at how those natural things actually act and interact in the world. Taken altogether, these passages paint something of a picture of an Aristotelian mystic understanding of a natural thing of, that acknowledges first the actual fact that some new species have begun to be instantiated in nature by natural means. Now, for Aquinas and Aristotle, these would have been um, rare and, and, and the exception, but it's, it's there. Uh, now, and also only requires a fixity of species on a sort of natural argument about the what, what, what is proper to nature, um, and arguably uh, is, is, is with an uh, inherent supposition about something of the universe being eternal. And is also comfortable with something of the idea that members of the hierarchy of nature may at times not be actually instantiated in nature. Uh, here, in, in the case that there's a time when there wasn't a mule and then a mule first came to be. This is the, the specific question that Aquinas is, is dealing. The idea that Phoenix was the opposite, that there could be a time when a particular species did not actually have a member instantiating that nature in the mo uh, at, uh, at a particular moment. Fourth, uh, it insists that general arguments about the nature of species must give way to arguments rooted in the empirical facts about the actual natural beings that exist. So now my, my second portion, the, the tape of the universe. So turning to the second half of the dilemma that Nogar raises, I want to consider just how contingent and fluid the natural world actually is under the best understanding of modern science. Perhaps the most famous and poetic expression of the contingency of nature is the image proposed by the evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould, which is in his, uh, uh, his book, Wonderful Life, uh, the Burgess Shell and, and the, the complexity of, of, of that particular period of evolution. And he uses this image in various contexts describing how we could perform a thought experiment of rewinding the tape of life, rolling back the particular history of evolutionary development to some particular moment and letting it play back again. He argues that replaying the tape of life will almost certainly result in different outcomes, a different taxonomy of creatures due to the particular contingencies of history. 
To drive his point home, he suggests a host of other possible worlds of evolution, branching off at various points from our best understanding of the actual history of life, each of which seems perfectly reasonable from the point of departure, and yet would have led to a very, very different biosphere. Many of these arise from minor changes in the ordering of historical events, either in the biological world itself uh, or in the broader environment that produces particular, these particular environmental pressures, or evolutionary pressures. And this presents a picture of the natural world that is inherently contingent, almost down to its core, uh, completely dependent upon history for what actually exists today, rather than on any sort of pre-existing order that's there. Now, Gould's view of the role of contingency in evolution has been debated among biologists from the moment it was published. Uh, and further, the, the thought experiment he proposed has, in a certain sense, actually been carried out experimentally on limited timescales, of course, but uh, to see how varied and contingent the actual process of evolution is. Now, not being a biologist myself, I defer to a, a recent review of experimental and philosophical work in this area in the journal Science, which suggests that laboratory replays, these experiments of evolution, show that repeatable outcomes are somewhat common, at least when founding populations are similar, and over time scales accessible to experiments. Moreover, evolutionary convergence among lineages, looking back at what actually exists, that share similar natural environments has proven more common than most biologists would have wagered even two decades ago. That it does so more often among closely related taxa, which share similar genetics and developmental programs, illustrates the yin and yang of contingency and determinism. So thus, there is clearly something of Gould's contingency in evolutionary biology, but it may not be as extreme and ungrounded as at least the brief caricature I presented uh, might portray. And yet, I, I would argue that if we expand our discussion of the natural order beyond biological species to uh, the sort of contingency Gould suggests is even more problematic. If we re rewound the tape of the universe beyond the origin of life all the way back to the Big Bang, or as close as your resident astrophysicist will let you, um, and press play again, it is true that many aspects of the universe would be very different. That particular pattern of the cosmic microwave background, where exactly the particular collections of uh, 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 or, or excesses and defects were, um, and with that then the particular uh, collection of stars and galaxies and clusters, the, the constellations we see and, 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 and the particular order, the map of the universe, this would change as these depend on quantum mechanical fluctuations that happen after the Big Bang at least Pache certain interpretations of quantum mechanics that might want to push more deterministic views of that. But that said, things like the periodic table of elements would be largely the same, with only possibly some minor discrepancies about whether some of the heaviest elements actually had a chance to be produced naturally. In fact, much of the story that, that Dr. Oberg painted up until the particular history of Earth would be largely unchanged. Presuming a few basic physical constants of nature are the same, uh, the, fine the fine structure constant having to do with electromagnetic force, the strong coupling constant uh, having to do with the strong force, the cosmological constant, uh, which was related to dark energy, and about 23 other numbers about fixing masses and relationships between various standard model particles. As a particle physicist, I wish it were less than 23, but that's about where we're at right now. Um, assuming these, uh, these numbers, uh, stayed the same, which it seems like they would, uh, we'd really only have to update our biology textbooks. Physics and chemistry would roughly be the same. Even if we push rewind harder and presume some sort of multiverse, 
of which our universe is one on a panoply of bubbles in a quantum soup. The particularities of our universe, uh, the, uh, the fundamental forces and particles, the periodic table, even its relative size and structure, would be determined by the initial conditions of that bu bubble, not by later, later contingent facts that happen in the development of the universe. Um, a, a hypothetical moment after we push play, the rest of the tape is, is pretty much fixed in its overall structure, uh, as far as inanimate matter goes. As, now, theoretical physicists, of course, are always seeking more things to uh, theorize about uh, and force our overworked experimental colleagues to test for us. Uh, and the suggestion has been made that perhaps even the physical constants uh, that I was talking about might change over time in our own universe, which would ch perhaps change this picture. But Ex the experimentalists have shown to the best of their ability that, the, or to, 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 with, with great success, uh, that there are absurdly minuscule upper bounds on how much the, these basic constants of nature have changed over time. Given all of this, for a large swath of the universe, most of its mass, if not its significance, there is a certain fixity and lack of contingency in the order of natural things. Matter and energy tend to collect in a relatively small set of stable, uh, stable structures. Not, uh, it, it, this includes things like stars and clusters and galaxies. So it's, it's complex, but not infinitely, uh, infinitely diverse. Um, and so this small set of stable states, or as the Thomas might prefer to talk about, these natural kinds, not all of these states are necessarily instantiated immediately from the moment of the Big Bang. But it is not a question of if, but when they will first come to exist. The complexity that comes with higher chemistry and life offers a much more complicated collection of these stable states of matter uh, uh, and of natural kinds to explore and with a much greater dependence on chance and contingency to determine which particular states actually make the cut, let alone when they do. So, I will not claim that in this talk I have provided a uh, complete and coherent Thomistic natural philosophy of the historical cosmos, despite the title of the talk. Uh, at best, I have simply, perhaps, hopefully, softened something of the blow of Nogar's problem by claiming that the Aristotelian Thomistic fixity of species and that that, that aspect of the eternity uh, was rooted more in natural and empirical claims than on some deeper metaphysical presupposition. Uh, as, as Nogar often talks about, an imported, an imported Platonism. Um, and that our historical cosmos is not as contingent and unstable as it at first might appear. Uh, perhaps in closing, I might just suggest some initial thoughts on a path forward in this context. I mean, if we look at what Aristotle, what, what Aristotle and Aquinas have, we, there are certain things that clearly must go. Uh, for Aquinas, uh, the, the actually the actually fully instantiated fixed taxonomy uh, of, 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 of uh, natural uh, natural things, uh, that that clearly does not fit in our universe. But on their own principles, the priority of natural arguments and natural philosophy and the importance of empirical evidence, it seems likely. Hopefully, I would I would think that they might be they'd be okay with this if they understood the full picture of our cosmology. Now, the fact that physical foundations of our natural world, the particular order and structure and symmetry that underlie physics and chemistry are, if not eternal, at least relatively immutable, fairly fixed, and, uh, and, and uh, suggests that, to me, that there is still some place for something of immutability in the natural order, 
some sort of uh, uh, mutable natures as part of an Aristotelian Thomistic natural philosophy. While individuals of the relatively simple taxonomy of inanimate species did not all actually exist in the earliest universe, they did, as Aquinas states, exist previously in their causes and were given their proper actuality when the time was right. It seems to me that something of this pattern could even perhaps be extended to the biological order as well, where there is uh, a, fixed, uh, a fixed and finite, if inc inconceivably large, range of potential biological kinds. I mean, simply the fact that biological objects are not actually infinitely large uh, suggests that there is you know, some, some upper limit on how complex it could be, even if it would be unimaginable to us to actually try and track that down. Um, and while, uh, so this, this, this relatively fixed and finite, uh, unconceivably large range of potential biological kinds, not all of these potential kinds would, would necessarily be instantiated, and of these, not all will exist at the same time, but perhaps by a process, uh, as, as suggested by, by, uh, uh, by Mariusz, uh, uh, that there, there could be um, uh, members of a species would still tend to generate things like themselves, would still tend uh, towards that nature of producing, that, and that, that uh, reproducing in their own kind, but on rare occasions, or in that classic, the or, the, for the or for the most part side of nature, that rare occasion, uh, they, can step, they can step in a new direction and allow some new kind to be instantiated. Now, no a priori principle will determine which kinds will actually exist. There is a place for history and contingency uh, within this picture, as there must be in, in our picture of historical cosmos. But this contingency of history is always, of course, under the ultimate guidance of divine providence. Thank you. Thank you for your presentation. I have a question from Professor Holder. Uh, I was under the impression that anyway, physics uh, words uh, under the hypothesis that the laws of nature themselves, the conservation of laws, are non-historical. And, um, and so there are some, at least some formal principles that are non-historical. And on top of that, not only some formal principles that are non-historical, but also, also some, something like nature, like bosons don't suddenly become fermions uh, and vice versa. So uh, there seems to be also some, uh, some element of uh, no, I mean, it's a good question. I think I agree with Father Thomas, I mean, what he was saying, that there is this interplay between the, um, the structure that's structures and laws that are eternal, at least in the sense that as long as our universe exists, uh, they are present in the same way as far as we can, as we can tell. As Father Thomas was alluding to, there has been measurements of some of these constants going back in time, um, many, like, many billions of years. They can look at sort of atomic um, emission lines and measure some of these constants, and there's, there's no um, signs of them changing. As you conservation laws, there's no signs of that changing. Um, fun fact, though, it was one of the solutions uh, to the absurd expansion of the universe uh, by those who did not want to accept the Big Bang hypothesis that you had sort of continuous creation of matter. Uh, so it's not something, uh, I mean, these laws, as far as you can tell, they are, they are true that these conservation laws, but there are things that need to be discovered. And uh, our best scientific explanation of what the universe is like is that they operate at all times and all places. 
But that is still a, a provisional truth. I happen to think that it's pretty close to, to the real truth. And I, I, I mean, I agree with Father Thomas. There's this interplay between contingency and immutable, uh, immutable structures. If you want to comment? No, I just, uh, yeah. I, um, I think it's important to recognize that it's, there is something of immutability, but also not the same immutability that you would find exactly in Aristotle and Aquinas. I mean, we do not have their fixity of all natures. So, I mean, yes, I mean, things like, yeah. It's arguably, yeah. Certain particles, it's hard to say exactly when they would have started. Uh, atoms clearly started at a certain date. Chemicals clearly started at a certain date. So there are periods of history where things that exist now did not exist uh, in a way that would not have been the case for Aristotle and Aquinas. But there are, that they, but they are, what those things would be um, was, in a certain sense, already fixed by what was already there. Um, so there's something of what, uh, I mean, something of a, a physical sense of Aristotle's um, um, being present in their causes. Um, why is it that the system with the lowest energy will have the highest energy? Why will the system go to this maximum level of necessary information? <laughs> and uh, why will the entropy define the error um, <laughs> um, that's a no, that's a very good question. Um, do I have a coherent philosophical thought on that at the moment? Um, I think one thing I would say is that. Um, uh, Just speak a little more. Sorry. So there, there is. Um, there, I mean, you know. So another aspect of our created order that clearly seems to be distinct from uh, the Aristotelian intimistic uh, no uh, notion is that there do not seem to be any actually existing immutable objects in our universe. And as best as we can tell, the, you know, the law of entropy would prevent any such thing of actually, uh, actually happening. Presuming that, that everything in the universe, generally speaking, acts the way that we're used to, um, everything has a tendency towards breaking down. And yet there is also something of the, the way in which chemistry and biology fight against entropy and build up these sort of stable structures of matter and energy so that this interplay between destruction and creation uh, allows for complexity. And if you actually look at the way um, Aristotle and Albert, Aquinas doesn't get into the details of some of these physical things as much. There's an interesting interplay, interplay they have between putrefaction and generation, not simply in spontaneous generation, but in other sorts of animals as well, that there is this interesting interplay between um, destruction and decay of, thing, of, of certain things for the possibility of higher order and growth in other things. Uh, and so perhaps there is something that we could, we could sort of squeeze out of that just at that moment. Uh, following on from that, but in a much more ignorant vein, I'm sorry to say. Um, obviously, actuality is uh, a metaphysical problem, precisely a physical principle. Yeah. Um, but it does seem to be capable of gradation um, in ordinary natural objects. And I wonder if there is any sense in which the greater actuality of the heavenly spheres transmuted to something like um, a concentration of actuality in, in the beginning of the historical universe, or a, a, um, a correlation of actuality and energy, or something of that, um, that we would need to make in order to 
greater actuality of being required to actualize any in certain yeah, if we could find some immutable heavenly, heavenly spear somewhere, that'd be really useful um, in, in, in a certain sense. But I will say, um, just a comment on this, um, that we need to be careful exactly about exactly what Aquinas means when he talks about the influence of these immutable heavenly spheres. I think sometimes there's a danger because at least my, my first re uh, interaction with them was in reading the Prima Pars um, uh, on... Um, Oh gosh, I'm going to be uh, probably like to be mad at me. One of, of the early questions on on, on, the, the, uh, on the, the the one God about um, God's power, um, and he uses the example of the sun as this equivocal universal cause, um, and he talks about the sun, you know, man being generated by man and the sun. Um, now he says that because he presumes everyone in his class knows what he's talking about, because that was a common notion that everyone would have absorbed, you know, well before they showed up in his classroom. We don't get that. And so what we get is God, and we don't understand the Son. And so we get sometimes, I think, and I found myself doing this in other conversations I found, impute something of God to the notion of universal causality. God clearly is a universal cause, but, he's not, not, but not every universal cause necessarily acts exactly like God. In fact, the, every other universal cause definitely doesn't act like God. Um, there are actually other examples of um, eminent cause and universal cause. There's a, a oh gosh, John Deacon, I think. I, I can't pronounce his name correctly. It's a paper in the Thomas on this, this question of uh, this type of eminent cause and, and universal cause and, and, and how that shows up in other places in Aquinas as well. But the way the heavenly spheres acts is very complex for that cosmology. It's not as if the heavenly sphere immediately zaps lower matter and, and makes something happen. It works through all of the other elements and various other natural processes to bring about the very process of whether it's spontaneous generation or the generation of man. It's a very holistic and, and, and complex um, uh, physical system. And this kind of gets to what I was saying, that sometimes we can oversimplify the, the, the cosmology that, that Aristotle and Aquinas has. And I'm not saying we should study it because it's right, but just on the principle, sort of the Chestertonian principle that you should understand why a fence is there before you throw it out, uh, it can be helpful to understand something of why they have these principles in order to understand what we actually need to replace and what we might be okay leaving aside. So that was a long exposition on that, sir. Thank both of you for wonderful um, talks. This is for Dr. Hoover. Um, so you mentioned uh, at the beginning of your talk that we should not equate the Big Bang with creation. Um, and that seems obviously right to me. Um, but I'm wondering, do you think the Big Bang is evidence that the universe had a metaphysical beginning? Or do you think it's just completely irrelevant to the question of whether the universe had a metaphysical beginning. Thank you. So the very short answer, I would say it's completely irrelevant, but, and I think it is an important but, um, I don't think it is uh, by chance that we live in a universe that has sort of a visible beginning, even if it's not necessarily a metaphysical one. Um, that seems very clear to point towards a metaphysical beginning, even if it's not proof of one in itself. And in that sense, I think it does, um, 
it does give people an intuition about that there is a metaphysical beginning as well, which you don't have in the same way when you think that you live in an eternal universe, which I think actually, just going back seeing how things unfolded historically, it's pretty clear that when the Big Bang Theory was introduced, so when Father Lemaitre uh, introduced it, it was met with a lot of suspicion because people in their minds, I mean, did make this equal sign between creation uh, and the Big Bang. And I think it's a very natural human thing to do, and I think it's a providential uh, thing to do. But I think if you do look at the sort of metaphysical arguments, I, I mean, I agree with, with Thomas that uh, you can't uh, just from metaphysics infer like one from, from, from the other, that God could have created an eternal universe and uh, having a beginning that could have come out of another beginning, you know, going further and further back, uh, that could have gone on in eternity. That itself is not, like, does not provide extra evidence, I guess, of a metaphysical beginning beyond that one has to exist anyway from an argument of contingency or such. Please, please help me thank our speakers.